And our reading today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Geboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind me, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arms, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan and his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Geboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that you have given us today. We thank you for the privilege that it is to come into your house and worship and to stand before your presence, Lord. So we, now we ask, even as we called earlier in the service, Lord, that uh, you would give us life according to your word and that the same spirit that filled the inner sanctuary, Lord, that we are now brought into, Lord, may you send that spirit to 
open our hearts and open our eyes to your true anointed one, Lord, who stands uh, risen and reigning from the throne of heaven, Lord. And it's on all this in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said, into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them volleyed and thundered. Stormed that with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon behind them, volleyed and thundered. Stormed that with shot and shell, white horse and hero fell. They had fought so well came through the jaws of death and back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them left the 600. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade. Noble 600. Now, I presume many of you will recognize those words. Famous words from the narrative poem of Alfred Lord Tennyson, Charge of the Light Brigade. Memorializing one of the bloodiest battles in the middle of the 1800s during the Crimean War, when England experienced a frontal assault by the Russians. Now, many of us don't even know the history behind much of that battle, and some of us weren't even sure what war that was a part of, but we knew that poem. In a weird sort of way, the poem almost hovers above the history, memorializing, capturing a pivotal moment, one of the darkest days in English history during the middle of the 1800s. A battle where many lives of British soldiers were lost and where no decisive military advances or gains were won. It was a moment where the hope of the English was dashed where it felt like the kingdom that had been built, oh, Mary England itself, was tottering, teetering, maybe on the verge of a fall. It's often in moments like that that poems are written, songs are written, because there's something about poetry and there's something about music that can capture history and memorialize an event, especially one that is shot through, no pun intended, with great grief. 
a moment like the one that David is experiencing at the news of the fallen on Mount Gilboa, especially the fallen of Saul and Jonathan. There are many lessons that we could take from this passage, but in the few minutes that we have to explore it together, I want to simply look with you at three things. I want you to see that this passage teaches us that there is a time to mourn. There is a time to mourn, and it is appropriate for the people of God to grieve at loss. But I want you to see, secondly, that there is a time to honor the dead, to honor those who have fallen, who have passed from this world into the next. And there is a way at which we can honor their memory. But then finally, I want us to see that there is also a time for us to memorialize history and the pivotal moment of the moving from life unto death. A time to mourn, a time to honor the dead, and a time to memorialize the history of moving from life to death. Now The scene is set in the opening verses. And it should hit us in the midst of this series a little jarring because it just begins with the words, after the death of Saul. Wait a minute. We haven't talked about the death of Saul. We were in 1 Samuel chapter 30 last week together and Saul, by every rumor, was very much alive. Something has happened. Something significant has happened. It's in those words that the final chapter of the book of Samuel is actually summarized, a chapter which we've not given attention to in the course of this series. This series focusing on the life of David, not particularly the story of Saul. And chapter 31 of 1 Samuel really focuses upon the story of Saul and his death. It's there in that chapter where we read of the tragic passing of Saul, Jonathan, Saul's other two brothers as well, not mentioned here in the text, Saul's armor bearer. David receives the news here in 2 Samuel chapter 1. He didn't know this had happened. You'll remember that he has just come back from a remarkable victory over the Amalekites. The Amalekites had come and burned the hometown of Ziklag, of which he was living with his family and his men. He'd returned there after the defeat of the Amalekites with all the plunder, receiving back all their wives and all their children. It was a remarkable victory. All was well until this Amalekite messenger shows up, one who has who, as we're told, has, has dirt upon his head, has his clothes torn, one who is clearly in the midst of grief, one who comes to tell David basically the news of a nightmare, that Saul has fallen, that the bodies of the soldiers of the Israelites are strewn all across Mount Gilboa, that Jonathan and The two other sons of Saul have both fallen, meaning the natural successors to the kingdom of Israel are no more. 
He is essentially reporting to David for the very first time that the kingdom of Israel has fallen. That's how the news would have hit the ears of David. And it is why we see David in that moment understandably, completely devastated, thrown into sorrow, into mourning, into grief. We're given a picture of it there in verses 11 and 12. David and his men tore their clothes. They mourned and they wept and they fasted till evening after hearing the news of the passing of the Lord's anointed. Friends, this is normally the way sorrow comes, isn't it? We don't usually expect it. And we never invite it. It comes like a thief. It comes in the moment where we've just been victorious over the Amalekites. We've got our wives back after a great fear of loss. And our children are now playing in the front yard. It's a sunny day. We're drinking sweet tea and we're rocking in rocking chairs on the front porch and we're talking to our neighbors and a messenger shows up that tears our world apart. Isn't this how grief comes? It comes suddenly. And when it comes, we hardly know how to process what it is that we're experiencing, how to even walk through the myriad of emotions that come rushing at us, At the first hearing of such devastating news, can you imagine the range of emotions that David must have felt? Let's get in his shoes for just a minute. From one angle, he's just heard Saul, his arch enemy, has died. We might expect a sigh of relief. We might expect praising in the streets to happen. It's not what we see at all. Because side by side with the language of the loss of Saul and the recognition that he has been after David as his chief enemy for years, he also has the news that Jonathan, his best friend, has been slain. An arch enemy and a best friend in the same battle receiving the same word at the same time. With also the note that the army of Israel has been utterly decimated. That the Philistines are now occupying cities of Israel in northern Israel in the land of Canaan. It's in that moment that we see David utterly struck with the pain of grief. He can register with him the significant political implications, the significant personal implications of what it is that he is experiencing in that moment. It's, It's overwhelming. You've received devastating news. You know what it's like to have your joy robbed from you suddenly, unexpectedly, violently, with the news of such sorrow and grief. And you know how deep it can run. And you know why it runs so deep. Grief runs so deep, often in cases where there is, where there is deep regret. Regret, in some ways, is... The pain of this kind of loss, maybe not regret because we didn't do the things that we had wished we had done with the persons who are now gone, but regret in David's case of, well, what might, could it have been if Saul and I could have been reconciled? I'll never get to see 
Saul, who originally had invited me into his home years ago when I was a young shepherd boy simply to play the lyre so that his own tortured and soul could be calmed. One who invited me to his table and treated me like a son. One in whom we read in 1 Samuel 24, David referred to as my father. Someone in whom I have an intimate history with, of whom I was dearly loved by and of whom I dearly loved. And this fractured relationship over the last few years, filled with jealousy, filled with dissension, filled with division and with violence, was never able to be mended before Saul died. You know that feeling. Where there is, there is a relationship that used to be so sweet, it used to be so important. And you can receive such comfort and such solace from and now it's just gone. And you hope... That before they die, something will be made right. But you also potentially know what it is like to lose someone and to have been unreconciled with them. To not have been to say the things on their deathbed that you would have loved to have told them. To not hear from them on their deathbed the things that you would have loved to have heard from them. Regret. Makes grief all that much more painful. But you know what also makes grief painful? It's really the opposite side of regret. But it's a part of the longing of regret. It's the recognition of love. You see, grief is is equal to the intimacy and the depth of the love that we feel for that which was lost. When we weep, when we cry... When someone dies, when a tragedy takes place, that weeping, those tears that stream down our face are as the symbols of our love. We have cared so deeply that our souls and our hearts are wrecked so emotionally and spiritually in that moment because the grief of that loss is simply overwhelming. Would not have David experienced both of these things? Uh, Losing Saul and the The complexity of the relationship that he had with him. The honoring that he gave to him as the Lord's anointed. But the violent attempts at taking his life simultaneously. Then with Jonathan, who was his best friend who protected him. Of which he's probably not seen and had much close encounter with. In fact, after he leaves Jonathan, in that fateful moment in 1 Samuel, where the two embrace and send each other off in their respective directions. We have no account that David and Jonathan engaged again in their friendship. To hear of both of those things simultaneously, this is a mixture of emotions of deep love and deep loss, deep regret. And it's simultaneously the moment where David knows the kingship is coming his way Quickly, that he must now lead. He must lead in the midst of this crisis. A national crisis. This is, if we can put it this way, the 9-11 of Israelite history. This is the, this is the, the death of JFK. This is the moment when a nation politically feels like things are 
are shaky. They are unsettled. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what this means. It's in that moment, the loss of their great leader Saul, that David is going to rise into power. He knows that this is the moment. And yet, he is personally wrecked while being called into his first charge as a leader. What a tremendous moment this is. But what we see David do in this moment is so important to us. And it shows us both David's heart and his closeness to be able to be engaged intimately while simultaneously leading the people of God that he takes time to mourn. He takes time to mourn. We live in a time where sorrow happens, grief happens, and we get a couple of days off from work and we're back at the grind. Where pivotal moments of loss happen in our lives and we do our best to ignore them, to suppress them. Because it's difficult to lean into the grief. It's difficult to open up our hearts to it. We simply want it to pass. We want some way for it to simply be medicated through rather than embraced and taken to the Lord and owned as a moment that we need to be deeply present in despite how painful it feels. David gives us an example of one who doesn't calculate how he's going to get to the throne. He's not one who begins to exercise immediate political power. He's not one who suppresses it. He's not one who rejoices. He's one who enters into the reality of the moment and he leads his men around him in it and he grieves over the loss and the brokenness of the fallen world in which he lives. Friends, David is teaching us, God is teaching us, take time to mourn. Take time to mourn. Those of you who have passed through such grief, you know that if you don't take time to mourn, it comes out in other ways later in our lives when we suppress it. It comes out in sideways manners when we don't begin to come out in the realism of that grief and take it to the Lord. In fact, the healing process begins most deeply when we are willing to live most really into the grief that is present. David took time to mourn. And his men took time to mourn. And he didn't jump right into a pattern of leading, but he does lead. Let me show you how he leads. He takes time to mourn, but secondly, he takes time to honor the dead. I want you to see his leadership here. It's a dangerous business to be a messenger. It's dangerous business to be a messenger, especially a messenger in the ancient world. For sometimes messengers had to bear difficult messages. You remember the saying, you know the saying, don't shoot the messenger. We say that to remind the hearers that we're about to say something of which you're not going to like. But it's not for me. I've just come to deliver the goods. The reality is in the ancient world, a messenger was often someone who came from a public court. He was a town crier. Uh, one who came to give a public announcement of the king. And it was not uncommon that when a town crier or when a messenger would give a public announcement of a king, that if he gave bad news, he was harmed for it, even killed. But if he gave good news, the people rejoiced with him. 
and often rewarded him. At first reading, it might appear that something like this is actually taking place with this messenger, though he's not sent by any king. He's not an official messenger. He's not a, he's not a public town crier. He is indeed one who has an angle, one who sees a way to capitalize on the death of Saul and get on an inroad into the up-and-coming administration, King David, or the soon-to-be. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because this Amalekite recounts the story of Saul's death with some details, but, but he filters in one very significant falsehood. In the previous chapter, again, which we did not get a chance to explore together, in 1 Samuel 31, we have recounted for us what I'd like to refer to as the true story of Saul's death. It's there that the narrator tells us that Saul was indeed shot by archers on Mount Gilboa and languished there on the hillside of Mount Gilboa, waiting to die. He was mortally wounded. But it is not an Amalekite who he reaches out to kill him in his moment of suffering as a kind of mercy killing. No, instead it's his armor bearer. He reaches out to his armor bearer and he says, he says, go ahead and kill me. I don't want these uncircumcised Philistines to kill me and then to take me off and to, to use me as propaganda of some form of celebration because they have killed the king of Israel, go ahead and kill me now. And the armor bearer, knowing that you should never kill the Lord's anointed, entirely resisted the asking of Saul to kill him in his moment of grief. And so Saul took matters into his own hands. We're told that Saul drew his own sword and he fell upon his sword, taking his own life. The armor bearer, seeing that taking place, also in commitment and in love for also took his life, falling upon his sword. It was a double suicide. A tragic, tragic end. It's not exactly how the story is told here, is it? This, this Amalekite, mixing in some of the details of the true story of 1 Samuel 31, begins to twist it, hopefully, for his own benefit. Yes, I found Saul mortally wounded and he called out to me and he requested that I finish him off. Well, he did call out for someone to finish him off, but it wasn't the Amalekite. And so, as an act of mercy, I put Saul out of his misery. And now I have come to you, Lord David, with the insignia of the king, his armlet as well as his crown, and I give it to you, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. Hopefully you can hear both in my retelling and the tone at which I'm describing it, the angle of the Amalekite. He wants and assumes at some level that David, when he hears of Saul's death, is not going to be that upset about it. That he assumes that David will in some ways, like maybe we assume, breathe a sigh of relief and maybe rejoice and honor the one who finished Saul off. And the one who brings to him the very accoutrements of kingship, the armlet and the crown, that these things wouldn't be lost to the Philistines. 
In the very worst light, the Amalekite could be responsible for Saul's death, but he's really committing an act of mercy. He was simply loving Saul in the way that Saul wanted to be loved. But surely David won't even see it that way. At the very worst, he'll see it as that act of kindness towards Saul. But at the very best, he'll see me as the next national hero, one in which he would want to draw into his administration, who would be in the king's court, who is on the high road to fame and to fortune. This was the angle of the Amalekite. And so David asked him a question, and in two questions, undoes him. Now, now, where is it that you came from? Well, I am a, a Malachite, but my father is a sojourner. Now, that's a very important term. One that we would probably pass over in the text and wouldn't think anything about it. But what the Amalekite is actually saying is, I have lived in Israel, in the land of Canaan, under the rulership of Saul, and I have lived according to the laws of this land. You see, the Amalekites were actually dwellers in the land of Canaan before the people of Israel came in and took over the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua. They were charged to destroy the Amalekites, but as you might remember, they didn't do that. And the Amalekites keep showing up as a thorn in Israel's side because they allowed them to abide within the land of Canaan. And so this Amalekite has sojourned in Saul's land under his rulership, living by the laws of the land potentially his whole life, which means that he knows the rules. He's not a foreigner in the sense that, well, I didn't know you can't take the Lord's anointed. He is actually not a citizen of Israel, but one who was protected by its laws and one who was under its rulership, which is why David said, then why were you uh, not afraid to take the life of the Lord's anointed? David saw very clearly... <laughs> That this Amalekite has violated one of the most sacred laws in the Old Testament. As the book of Deuteronomy teaches us that the Lord's anointed shall be slayed by no one except the Lord himself. This Amalekite broke that law and he suspected that David would be okay with bending a rule like that at the very least. But David instead teaches us a very important lesson. That he will, as he showed in 1 Samuel 24... As he showed in 1 Samuel 26, when he had the chance to take Saul's life, and he didn't because he honored the Lord's anointed, he will honor the Lord's anointed not merely in life, but guess what? Also in death. Also in death. Now, there's a tremendous amount that we can learn from this particular text, but one of the things that we learn is beware for your sin will find you out. If there's ever been a plan that's gone south, it was this one for the Amalekite. Can you imagine him traipsing about the 80 miles to Ziklag, which is what it would have been from Mount Gilboa, taking with him the armlet and the crown with dreams of fame and fortune and power coming in his way when in fact he was running to give King David the coming King David, the insignia of the throne, only to have his own life cut out from under him simultaneously. Beware your sin will find you out. Haven't you seen that in your own life? A little twisting of the truth here, there. A little maneuver there, a little manipulation there. 
and it comes back and it bites you. Either now or later or in eternity. There is no idle word. There is no idle thought. There is nothing of which the Lord does not take into account. And in this particular case, David, not even knowing the true story of the death of Saul, is able to sniff out a fraud when he sees one. And he's able also to execute justice when it's called for. And in so doing, you know what he's doing? He's signaling to the people of Israel something really important. I will be a man who lives by the law of the Lord. I will be a man. I will be a king who will seek to politically rule in a way who honors what it is that the Lord has commanded. David in doing this is, well, he's doing something extremely important. I want you to think about this politically. There would have been a division among those who loved Saul and among those who loved David. This is a precarious moment for an up-and-coming king. As the, the shaky ground of the kingdom of Israel is exposed and there's a vacuum of authority, will David act in such a way as to destroy Saul's life and legacy or will he act in such a way as to uphold him, to honor him as the Lord's anointed? And as he comes into a rule, will he seek to distance himself from everything that Saul is? Or will he carry that which is good in the legacy of Saul with him? Will he honor him and thus bring a nation to solidarity that in a moment of weakness and division is on the crust of crumble? This is a man who is exercising leadership. In the midst of such sorrow, I want you to think of the kind of leadership, for instance, that we saw in our own country, in the falling of the Twin Towers, in the destruction of the Pentagon, in that moment, a leader who would bring to the nation solidarity. Isn't it fascinating also how in moments of crisis and tragedy, some of the political wrangling begins to disappear? And what begins to heighten is across party lines, a combination of care and affection for the nation itself regardless of the political differences. We can begin to lock arms for what we know is most important. David's in a moment like that. And he leads as one who shows honor to whom honor is due. Now this continues when we see that as David mourns and now as David honors, he begins to actually function like a king even before he's a king. His first act is to write a poem. His first act as the incoming king, the one who will be anointed in the very next chapter, is to write a song. A song that we're told in verse 17 that is to be taught to all of the people of Judah and inscribed in the book of Jeshur, a book of national memorial war songs. A book not of the psalms of religious sense, but a book that's... that's more like America the Beautiful or, or, or a national anthem. One that's along the lines of creating national unity, of memorializing a moment of darkness, of difficulty. It's a charge of the light brigade. It's an Alfred Lord Tennyson kind of turn of phrase. And yet it's personal. It's poignant. 
And it's meant to draw a nation together in memorializing a moment that will change their lives forever. We know that the narrator in of 1st and 2nd Samuel is positioning it at such a priority because poetry plays a significant role in these two books. You'll remember how 1st Samuel opens up with the poetry of Hannah. Uh, the song of Hannah as she prays to the Lord for a son. We'll see at the end of 2nd Samuel that David will sing the song of deliverance and his final words. And right in the middle at the seam of 1st and 2nd Samuel, which would not have existed in the original Hebrew, right at this turning point, what do we find but a poem? A poem that's teaching us that this is a shift in redemptive history. This is the close of an era and the beginning of another. That the mighty have indeed fallen. And in this moment of intense mourning, David wants to memorialize this and stick it into the minds of the people of Israel that they might remember it for all times. We as a country on September 11th say things like, never forget. Never forget. That's what's going on here. We will never forget that the uncircumcised Philistines did this to the Lord's anointed. David will use this as a rallying cry for he is not done with the Philistines. But what's fascinating is David doesn't go to attack the Philistines with a sword. He goes to forge the nation's identity with a poem. And he does it in a song that's going to stick in their hearts. That they're going to sing together and be united as one which will launch him into the greatest age in Israelite history, which will launch into what we would call the golden age of Israelite history. Now the reason laments are so important is that they take the emotion of grief and they put it in an unforgettable, thoughtful form. You forget the gush of emotions and the words that you say in the overthrow of the moment of sorrow. But when someone, a poet, a songwriter, inscribes it, it sticks in our memories. It lodges in our hearts and it has a formative shape on the way in which we move forward. In this particular lament, we see David doing several things. We see him, first of all, experiencing and feeling with the nation of Israel the pain of public disgrace. I want you to see that in verses 19 to 21. He says in verse 19 that the enemies are rejoicing over Israel's defeat. That in Gath and in Eshelon, they're going to publish the news of this defeat and the women will rejoice in the streets at seeing the nation of Israel fall. Wasn't it disillusioning to watch the television? The day when the Twin Towers fall and to see the parts of the rest of the world rejoicing? Is it disillusioning to you? It's the same thing that Saul is dealing with, or David is dealing with here. He's acknowledging and recognizing that our enemies today, this is a day of celebration and rejoicing. As we melt into a puddle, utterly crumbled by this disaster. He places a curse on Mount Gilboa. That it would never experience dew of heaven. That it would never experience fruitfulness. That the place would be as a scourge. A reminder 
of the disaster that took place among God's people. But then he takes time to praise. To praise Saul. To praise Jonathan, two warriors who fought together in the moment of need. To talk about them as swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. Men who were courageous, who ran towards the fight and didn't back off, which is why their blood was shed on Mount Gilboa. He talks about the prosperity of Saul's reign in verse 24, how the women are dressed luxuriously and they're able to have rubies and jewels because of the fruitfulness of Saul's kingdom and the prosperity that we've enjoyed under his reign. And he concludes with a love note to Jonathan, the one in whom he was one in soul with in verses 25 to 27, describing that love as greater than even the love of women. A friendship so tight, so intimate, that you can sense even in David's own life a part of his soul is fading. When you read these words from David, what it is that you see is, is a man who is mourning, a man who is honoring, a man who is memorializing, and a man who is simultaneously leading a people into a day, a better day yet to come. And he does it by acknowledging that indeed the mighty have fallen. In some ways it's a picture of what will be the greatest theme of redemptive history. Uh, not where bodies will be strewn over Mount Gilboa, but where one body will hang on a cross in Mount Calvary. Of which... Poem after poem will be written. Poems like Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, where the Apostle Paul talks about the Lord Jesus Christ emptying himself, giving himself up as a servant, being obedient to death, even death on a cross, recognizing that this greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, is entering us into even a greater realm of redemptive history as all of his disciples and followers wept thinking it was the end of the kingdom that they had hoped would come. Do you see, this moment is a picture of that moment, of a king who's leading not merely a nation of Israel, but a people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, who's spiritually bringing to bear and laying low the enemy of God's people, even the evil one himself. Laying low sin, destroying death, and conquering it in the resurrection. Saul indeed killed his thousands. David killed his ten thousands. But Jesus killed the one that mattered. He killed sin and death itself. And he is the one who is bringing us forth from the grave through the power of the Spirit in the preaching of the gospel. And one day as he comes back, on that glorious white horse, he will have an armlet and a crown of which the world is not worthy of even seeing. Because of the power and the greatness of what it is that he has accomplished. And listen friends, he did it as the mighty one who fell. Who got back up again. And who reigns in heaven right now. Living to make intercession for you and me. As we read a passage like this. We enter into its mourning. We acknowledge the truth of honoring the dead. 
We memorialize in history the redemptive advent of a brand new era. How can we not cast our gaze towards Christ? The man of sorrow is acquainted with grief. The one who honors us when we don't even deserve the honoring. The one who has received in memory of the consciousness of God himself in providence, the one who is the heart of every real poem of true joy and of true hope. He is the subject matter. And the one in whom we cast our gaze, no matter what our mourning is, no matter what our sorrow is, no matter how suffering circumstances we experience now, he is the one who will bring all things to rights. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to do just that in Christ, even further in our lives today, as those who need this truth made plain to us in the power of this glorious gospel. We remember Christ. We honor Him. We memorialize, even in our own mind's eye, what it is that He has done. And we do it by leaning on your word, which you have spoken to us. Teach us to walk as a people who grieve in hope and with expectation, knowing that the sad circumstances of our lives will indeed come untrue, and that hope everlasting is the reward. Confirm this truth to us now, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen.